Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. most notable differences between Game of Thrones, the TV show, and A Song of Ice and Fire, the book series, is that the White Walkers on the TV show are led by this charismatic fellow called the Night King, while the White Walkers of the books, on the other hand, seem to do their white walking on their own, without a discernible leader. I told you, we don't have a lord, we're an anarcho-syndicus commune. The thing is, there are ample signs in the books that the ancient enemy known as the Others are in fact looking for a new leader. Or if not exactly a leader, they're at least looking for a certain special someone who may be the key to unlocking their deepest magic, someone who allows them to whitewalk their way down past the wall and into Westeros. Someone that can help trigger a new long night. As we discussed in the A New Night's King video, there are really only two choices here, and both have ample symbolic evidence to support them, Euron Crozai and Jon Snow. Euron is the candidate who wants the job, but Jon Snow might be the one who gets stuck with it. I outlined the case for Euron in my videos Night's King Crozai and Euron King of the Apocalypse, and today it's time to talk about the possibility of Jon Snow becoming otherized, becoming a frozen popsicle, becoming some sort of new Night's King. I said last time that I can see basically two different ways for this to happen. First off, the others might steal John's body, fill it with the holy blue fire of the cold gods, and use him to lead their invasion of Westeros. There's a lot of symbolism to suggest that, as I'll show you today, and much of it has to do with John's resurrection being somehow tied to the fall of the wall and the fall of a new long night, two of the biggest Chekhov's guns in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Then there's the prince that was promised to the other's theory, which is the idea that at the very end of the story, John might have to give himself over to the White Walkers to be otherized as a means of resolving the ancient conflict of ice and fire. I'll cover each of these intriguing and by no means mutually exclusive possibilities in their own video. Today it's the others will steal John's body and in another video we'll talk about Jon Snow, Ice Jesus. So hey there friends, it's Lucifer Means Lightbringer, and in case you haven't heard, I'm writing my first book. It's called Paradise Gained, Christianity, Sacred Symbolism, and Freedom from Dogma. Would mean a lot to me if you sign up for the Indiegogo mailing list, which you can find linked below, or by searching for Paradise Gained by David Beers on Indiegogo, and yes, that's my name. My last video, Eve Did Nothing Wrong, is actually the seed idea from which the book is grown, so check that video out if you haven't already to see what this book is going to be all about. With that said, let's thank some patrons and turn Jon Snow into a popsicle and slap an ice crown on his frozen noggin. In my many years of analyzing A Song of Ice and Fire, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, I had the old man effect on. Uh, yes, in my six years of analyzing A Song of Ice and Fire, I've thought about Jon Snow and his symbolism a lot, as he's one of my favorite characters, and because his symbolism is some of the most interesting anywhere in the books. 
The clues that his destiny might involve a pair of shiny blue star eyes have been apparent from the beginning. I mean, we're talking about a guy whose name is synonymous with Jack Frost, after all. Since Jack is a nickname for people named John, for reasons of German etymology, and since the words snow and frost are more or less the same. Jack Frost is essentially a personification of the frosty chill of winter, just as the others are, so no one should be shocked if a character named John Snow becomes some sort of frosty king of the ice people. Other clues about John's icy destiny, which popped up right at the beginning of the story, abound. As soon as he gets to Castle Black, Alistair Thorne mockingly dubs him Lord Snow, but the name sticks. That's a snow joke. And pretty much the entire watch then calls him Lord Snow through the rest of the books. Much like the name Jon Snow equating to Jack Frost, the title Lord Snow sounds like it should belong to, well, some sort of king of the others. To make matters worse, book two has John journeying north of the wall and meeting Ygritte, and Ygritte promptly tells John upon hearing his name that Snow is an evil name. That's an understandable take on Ygritte's part, since the wildlings live north of the wall under constant fear of the Ice Whites and the others. But consider what she's really saying here. She's directly implying that John's name evokes the evil of the others. Lord Snow, right? And let's not forget that John comes from the line of the Kings of Winter, who sport such White Walker-esque nicknames as Ice Eyes and Snowbeard. Shout out John Ice Eyes. I've sometimes speculated that there may have been Starks in the ancient past who learned to manipulate ice magic as Melisandre does fire magic. I mean, besides all those icy nicknames, consider the wall. The wall is built to keep the others out, ostensibly, and yet is made of ice and clearly with magic, so it's always seemed possible to me that someone who fights for the living may have been able to wield magical ice, kind of like the others do. This person could only have been a Stark, I'm thinking, and so if John gets ice transformed, he might not even be the first of his line to do so. Oh yeah, and uh, Night's King was supposedly a Stark, so there's that. Then there's the precedent of Cold Hands, who is unquestionably an ice white, a popsicle zombie. And yet Cold Hands does not have the blue star eyes, which indicate other control, and of course Cold Hands fights against the others. One wonders how that happened. Was a dead man whited by the others, but then set free of bondage somehow? Kind of like what we saw on the show with Benjen? That's more or less the scenario I'm talking about when I say the others will steal John's body, because I don't think they'll possess it forever, only for a short time. And if that's what happened to Cold Hands, well, I think Cold Hands is just as much a precedent for John as Beric is, so that's quite telling. I went into detail about that in the Sacred Order of Green Zombies series, but the bottom line is that the most logical explanation for Cold Hands is that he was otherized and then set free, and if so, that seems like an obvious foreshadowing for what could happen to John. Just a couple of frozen Night's Watch zombie brothers trying to make their way in the world, you know? As you mythheads out there will know, George Martin often likes to give us readers a glimpse into the true nature of his characters whenever we see them in dream or vision form. And the first time we see John this way is in Bran's iconic Greenseer coma dream in A Game of Thrones. Finally, he looked north. He saw the wall shining like blue crystal and his bastard brother John sleeping alone in a cold bed his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. Now, everyone gets cold at the wall, of course, but John's just been murdered at the end of A Dance with Dragons, with John never feeling the fourth knife, but only the cold. So it could well be that Bran is foreseeing John's death, or even his cold resurrection here. Skin growing pale and hard sounds a bit like the frozen skin of an ice white, doesn't it? It also kind of reminds me of John's appearance in another dream vision that makes John sound a lot like a White Walker. 
Burning shafts hissed upward, trailing tongues of fire. Scarecrow brothers tumbled down, black cloaks ablaze. Snow, an eagle cried, as foemen scuttled up the ice like spiders. John was armored in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again. John is defending the wall like Azor High, yet he's armored in ice like a white walker. But here's the thing, I've thrown a fair amount of my A Song of Ice and Fire street cred down on the idea that Azor High became the figure remembered as Night's King, and created the first White Walkers with Night's Queen. Now before you brand me the heretic and throw stone-like YouTube comments at me, I see you there, put that down, please do check out my full argument on this admittedly heretical theory in the Night's King Azor High and Origin of the Others Night's Queen videos. At the very least, one has to wonder what all this business about John wearing ice armor or having his skin grow pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him is about. I mean, it sure sounds like John's resurrected body is going to have something to do with ice magic. By the time he's defending the wall again as he was in the stream, he will in fact be undead, it's worth noting. He may well be a cold hands by then, or perhaps a cold hands with a dash of fire. No doubt the funniest White Walker John foreshadowing comes not from a dream vision, but from a prank that Arya recalls Rob and John playing on the younger Starks in the Crypts of Winterfell. This is from the Arya chapter of A Game of Thrones, where Arya is hiding in the dark corridors below King's Landing and recalling the Crypts of Winterfell to summon up her wolf bravery. She'd just been a little girl the first time she saw them. Her brother Rob had taken them down, her and Sansa and Baby Bran, who'd been no bigger than Rickon was now. They'd only had one candle between them, and Bran's eyes had gotten big as saucers as he stared at the stone faces of the Kings of Winter, with their wolves at their feet and their iron swords across their laps. Rob took them all the way down to the end, past Grandfather and Brandon and Lyanna, to show them their own tombs. Sansa kept looking at the stubby little candle, anxious that it might go out. Old Nan had told her that there were spiders down here, and rats as big as dogs. Rob smiled when she said that. There are worse things than spiders and rats, he whispered. This is where the dead walk. That was when they heard the sound, low and deep and shivery. Baby Bran had clutched at Arya's hand. When the spirit stepped out of the open tomb, pale white and moaning for blood, Sansa ran shrieking for the stairs, and Bran wrapped himself around Rob's legs, sobbing. Arya stood her ground and gave the spirit a punch. It was only Jon, covered with flour. You stupid, she told him. You scared the baby. But John and Rob just laughed and laughed, and pretty soon Bran and Arya were laughing too. Look everyone, it's John, our special winter flower, covered in flower and pretending to be a pale, shivery spirit. A white walker, in other words. Note the mention of spiders and rats as big as dogs, to make us think of ice spiders as big as hounds. And yes, I'm absolutely looking for any excuse to show off all the great ice spider artwork in the fandom. Ah, oh, here's a nice one. And a cute little fella, too. Those icy mandibles can reach up to 12 inches in length. Anywho, not only does John pretend to be some sort of walking dead or white walker here, we also have two ideas that tie directly to John's death. One, this is taking place in the crypts of Winterfell, where John's spirit will likely roam at some point before he comes back to life. John, of course, has that recurring crypts dream that he can never quite finish, and I'd bet several moon meteors that John will finish that dream before he's ultimately resurrected. Enter Leanna's ghost, stage left, I'm thinking, strumming Rhaegar's harp and explaining the details of RLJ. The second thing that ties this funny memory of Arya's to John's death is the fact that Arya, upon realizing that the spirit was John, quote, gave the spirit a punch. 
Now here's Bo and Marsh stabbing John in the belly in a dance with dragons. Then Bo and Marsh stood before him, tears running down his cheeks. For the watch, he punched John in the belly. When he pulled his hand away, the dagger stayed where he had buried it. This is pretty much how foreshadowing works. In for a penny, in for a pound. If you're going to hint at John actually becoming a cold white spirit, then you also toss in a couple of other items of death and resurrection foreshadowing. And here we have that very thing. Arya mimics John's eventual murder. The crypts are where John's spirit will visit at some point, and where dead Stark's spirit belong anyway. And the Walking Dead will be what John is when he's raised. However, John will only be a cold undead spirit if he's raised by the White Walkers, right? None of this foreshadowing about John turning cold when he comes back from the dead can really make any sense unless ice magic plays a part in his resurrection, right? And unless there's a secret ice wizard or ice witch lurking about somewhere. Hey Val, how's it going? The only way that ice magic could possibly play a part in John's resurrection is if the others steal John's body. As I've been saying, the clues that the others have their eyes on Jon Snow come at us right from the beginning of the story, and right from the beginning of Jon's story, in fact. See if you can spot the others here at the scene of Jon's birth. He dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks and a tower long fallen, and Lyanna in her bed of blood. Ned's wraiths moved up beside him with shadow swords in hand. They were seven against three, and now it begins, said Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning. He unsheathed Dawn and held it with both hands. The blade was pale as milk glass, alive with light. No, Ned said with sadness in his voice. Now it ends. As they came together in a rush of steel and shadow, he could hear Lyanna screaming. Eddard, she called. A storm of rose petals blew across a blood-streaked sky as blue as the eyes of death. Now I've talked about the symbolism here many times, so I don't want to belabor the point, but consider the blue rose petals that Dream Ned is seeing blowing across the sky. Those are Lyanna's trademark blue winter roses, of course, and a storm of them is blowing across the sky. It's a blue winter storm at the birth of our special snowflake, in other words. And then Martin drives the point home by comparing the blue rose petals in the sky to the blue eyes of death. The blue eyes of death are found inside the frozen heads of the others, typically, and that's surely what the author is intending to evoke here. George Martin even places the blue rose petals that are like the eyes of the others up in the sky, where you usually find stars. So they really do seem like a good symbol of the others. So what we have here in terms of symbolism is nothing less than the suggestion that the others are watching over John's birth, or we might say, watching out for John's birth. In fact, I believe that's exactly what's going on, in the sense that John's birth is the thing which made the others begin to stir. That's long been an open question in the fandom, since the others seem to have been stirring for some time between a decade and two decades, according to Mance Raider, and taking into account Craster's practice of giving his male children to the others, which seems to have been going on for a while now. John's birth could fit that timeline, and if my theory that the others are on the lookout for a new Night's King of some sort is correct, then it kind of figures that they might be aware of his birth. And that's actually also true if we simply think about John as the prince that was promised, a savior born to confront the others. After all, the Relorists and the ancient Ashai and who knows who else have prophecies of Azor Ahai's rebirth, so many have long speculated that the others might have some sort of equivalent prophecy. Watch out for this guy, he's coming to kill you, something like that. 
Either way, I've believed that John's birth was the signal for the others to stir ever since I decoded the symbolism which implies the others as watching over John's birth at the Tower of Joy. And I also think this answer makes the most sense in the context of the overall plot. Leave your comments below though, by all means, and tell me what you think. Now, that same line about the storm of blue rose petals, which I just said implies a snowstorm, also implies a meteor shower, because the rose petals look like the eyes of the others, which are, of course, blue stars. A storm of blue bleeding stars, in other words. And don't fail to notice that blood-streaked sky. Martin is basically spelling out the idea of a storm of bleeding stars that has something to do with the others. Right here, here at John's birth. Why a meteor shower, someone out there is asking? Well, for those of you who are new to the channel, my very first theory was about a magical moon-cracking event, which seems to have been recorded in ancient myth, having been the cause of the original Long Night, which is when the others came for the first time, according to Old Nan. This cracking moon would have led to a meteor storm, which then would have caused the Long Night, and of course the meteors probably were magical, just like the Dawn Meteor, and so there you get the cause of the Long Night and the invasion of the others. The meteor storm brought the snowstorm, in other words, the snowstorm of the long night. If something like this theory is correct, and the leaks from the cancelled Blood Moon trailer appear to add some strong confirmation, as I documented in the appropriately titled video, Blood Moon Leaks Confirm My Theories, then it seems likely that the new long night, which is surely coming, might also be brought on by a moon meteor event. If that's what Martin invented to cause his first long night, then why come up with something completely different to cause another long night, right? That would seem silly. Ergo, whether John is destined to confront the others during this new long night, or to become a new knight's king, or both at different times, as I suspect will be the case, it makes a lot of sense to see the symbols of the fall of the long night here at John's birth. And that's exactly what we have. Martin has painted a portrait of the others in the sky while implying snowstorms and showers of bleeding stars. I think the message is that John's birth is the sign that the others have been watching for, and perhaps that John's rebirth, his resurrection that is, is somehow key to the fall of a new long night. To put it even more simply and straightforwardly, is that a word, straightforwardly? I think the others want to possess John's body in order to bring about the new long night. That may be the reason they haven't yet tried to cross the wall or to summon a knight without end if they have the ability to do such. Perhaps they need their Lord Snow to lead them, or to enable some sort of deep White Walker magic. The idea of John's resurrection being tied to a new long night, one connected to snowstorms and moon meteor storms, is spelled out fairly clearly in a wolf's dream that John has in A Dance with the Dragons. I analyzed the full quote in an older podcast episode called Ice Moon Apocalypse, so I'll summarize a bit here to keep it moving. The chapter begins with these paragraphs. The white wolf raced through a black wood beneath a pale cliff as tall as the sky. The moon ran with him, slipping through a tangle of bare branches overhead, across the starry sky. Snow, the moon murmured. The wolf made no answer. Snow crunched beneath his paws. The wind sighed through the trees. The wolf dream then proceeds in a pattern, with each subsequent paragraph repeating the structure of this last one, where it starts with the moon crying snow, and then we get a line about what Ghost is doing running beneath the moon but with the moon growing more aggressive about the snow until John finally wakes. First it murmurs snow, then we read, snow the moon called down, cackling, and then it's 
Snow, the moon insisted. And then we get this paragraph right as John winks. Snow, an icicle tumbled from a branch. The white wolf turned and bared his teeth. Snow, his fur rose bristling as the woods dissolved around him. Snow, snow, snow. He heard the beat of wings. Through the gloom, a raven flew. It landed on John's chest with a thump and a scrabbling of claws. Snow! It screamed into his face. All right, so you can see what's happening here. I'm shoehorning in the raven voice anywhere I can... No, no, no. What's happening is that John is having a wolf dream when the raven in his sleeping chambers starts to call his name. Snow, 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 snow. Inside the dream, it seems like the moon is talking with the raven's voice, yelling snow down at John. Then as he wakes, the moon becomes that raven and quite literally lands on John's chest, as if the moon had landed on top of John, crying snow all the way, even screaming it in his face. Better yet, there's a pretty direct suggestion of something hitting the wall here, presumably a piece of moon. As John wakes, angry at the raven, John attacks it with a pillow. John wriggled an arm out from under his blankets to shoo the raven off. It was a big bird, old and bold and scruffy, utterly without fear. Snow! It cried, flapping to his bedpost. Snow! Snow! John filled his fist with a pillow and let fly, but the bird took to the air. The pillow struck the wall and burst, scattering stuffing everywhere just as Dolorous Ed Tolay poked his head through the door. Beg pardon, he said, ignoring the flurry of feathers. Shall I fetch my lord some breakfast? All right, so John throws a feather pillow at the moon raven, but hits the wall, and then it explodes in a flurry of feathers, with the word flurry obviously being chosen to evoke a snowstorm, just as the raven has been promising all through the dream. The flurry of feathers comes from the exploded feather pillow, not the feathered raven, but still works to imply the moon as having blown up, since the moon was the raven a moment ago, and now we have a room full of floating feathers. Plus, when people think of pillows, they usually think of a white pillow, and a white pillow stuffed with feathers is more or less analogous to the white moon having a raven's voice. John throws his feather pillow at a wall, obviously, which is a lot like John throwing the moon at the wall. Put it all together, and what do you have? An exploding moon, bits of moon crashing down, a prophesied snowstorm, and the destruction of the wall. At the risk of stating the obvious, a meteor could be just the thing to smash the wall into pieces. And somehow this has something to do with John waking. As it happens, there's a terrific match to this scene all the way back in A Game of Thrones. This is near the very end of the book where John kills the whited Othor in Mormont's chambers. The hooded man lifted his pale moon face and John slashed at it without hesitation. The sword laid the intruder open to the bone, taking off half his nose and opening a gash cheek to cheek under those eyes. Eyes, eyes, like blue stars burning. John once again destroys the moon here, as it were, and this unleashes the blue stars. Even worse are the lines that follow soon after, which depict the shattered moon face hitting the earth. Dead Othor slammed into him, knocking him off his feet. John's breath went out of him as the fallen table caught him between the shoulder blades. The sword, where was the sword? He'd lost the damn sword. When he opened his mouth to scream, the white jammed its black corpse fingers into John's mouth. Gagging, he tried to shove it off, but the dead man was too heavy. Its hand forced itself farther down his throat, icy cold, choking him. Its face was against his own, filling the world. Frost covered its eyes, sparkling blue. 
Othor's face, which is like the moon, is now filling the world, as if falling out of the sky and filling the horizon. That sounds pretty bad. Sounds like a moon meteor attack. And indeed, the very next sentence mentions Othor's blue star eyes. Shooting stars that come from a broken moon will signal the attack of the others. That's the message here. The fact that Othor's name is one letter away from other seems intentional, like a way to make us think about him as representing the others as a whole. Now, the really messed up thing here is that John seems to be the one destroying the moon, right? Which would bring on the new Long Night. And while I don't see John himself knowing how to crack a moon or wanting to, he might just be that fellow known as Azor Ahai Reborn. And the original Azor Ahai broke the moon when he stabbed Nissa through the heart to forge Lightbringer, according to legend. More to the point, it's possible the others may know something about cracking moons too. Not only because the others seem to be able to use the Long Night to their advantage, but because Azor Ahai may have become Night's King, creator of the others. And he was, again, the original Moonbreaker. If there's any remnant of Azor Ahai's spirit or his knowledge alive in the collective intelligence that animates the others, the others may know what is needed to crack the moon again and blot out the sun. Could John perhaps be some sort of new Nissa Nissa figure whose death magic can be harnessed to break moons? Or is simply making John a new Knight's King, a new Azor High Reborn, but frozen, enough to enable John to break the moon with some sort of magic? The bottom line is that we know blood magic is the most powerful form of magic in a song of ice and fire. And John, who has the bloodlines of ice and fire in his veins, if you will, may well be the most potent blood sacrifice available. Consider, if you will, the lines of one of the moon-cracking myths from the past, one which actually prophesied this future moon meteor apocalypse event even before I did. He told me the moon was an egg, Khaleesi, the Lycene girl said. Once there were two moons in the sky, but one wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat. A thousand thousand dragons poured forth and drank the fire of the sun. That is why dragons breathe flame. One day the other moon will kiss the sun too, and then it will crack, and the dragons will return. One day the other moon will crack open too, eh? The other moon, did you say? And if those dragons coming from the moon were actually just broken pieces of moon turned into falling moon meteors, well then, what's being suggested here is another moon meteor apocalypse. Such an event would surely be the trigger for a new long night, unleashing the invasion of the others and probably knocking down the wall in the process. One thing is for sure, the only thing that John thinks about more than breaking the moon is breaking the wall, and usually in conjunction with the end of the world. I mean, look, it's actually really bad, John's obsession with knocking down the wall. Starts as soon as he sees the damn thing, in fact. This is from A Game of Thrones. You could see it from miles off, a pale blue line across the northern horizon, stretching away to the east and west and vanishing in the far distance, immense and unbroken. This is the end of the world, it seemed to say. John means that the wall is the line that marks the end of the civilized world, but still... The wall will be the end of the world if it ever gets knocked over. Immense and unbroken, do you say? Well, be a shame if something happened to it, right? This is from the same chapter. It was older than the Seven Kingdoms, and when he stood beneath it and looked up, it made John dizzy. He could feel the great weight of all that ice pressing down on him as if it were about to topple, and somehow John knew that if it fell, the world fell with it. 
Right, got it. If someone knocked it over, that would be bad. I wonder who would do such a thing. Outside, John looked up at the wall shining in the sun, the melting ice creeping down its side in a hundred thin fingers. John's rage was such that he would have smashed it all in an instant, and the world be damned. To which I can only say, whoa. Settle down, Beavis. This is the particular line that I was thinking of when I read that scene where John wakes from the wolf dream and smashes his feather pillow against the wall while trying to kill the raven that was the voice of the moon. I'm not quite sure how John will smash the wall, but it's being repeatedly suggested, so there must be something to it. All these quotes about the wall that we've just read are all in the first book of the series, too, so it's been on George's mind from the outset. This next one is from A Clash of Kings. The wall stretched east and west as far as the eye could see, so huge that it shrunk the timbered keeps and stone towers of the castle to insignificance. It was the end of the world. It's the end of the world, and we know it. All right. Uh, To make matters worse, the next paragraph mentions the Red Comet. And of course, I believe that it was a comet which was the thing that actually cracked the moon open last time. And John even pantomimes this by slashing the moon-faced Othor with his sword, if you recall. This is how you make an end to the world, and to the wall, and to my bad REM impressions. All right, one last one, and this one seems to use John's walking through the tunnel beneath the wall and out the other side as a metaphor for John dying and being resurrected, with a key line about the wall falling coming just as he emerges on the other side. Check it out. John nodded weakly. The door swung open. Pip led them in, followed by Clytus and the lantern. It was all John could do to keep up with Maester Eamon. The ice pressed close about them, and he could feel the cold seeping into his bones, the weight of the wall above his head. It felt like walking down the gullet of an ice dragon. He felt the cold seeping into his bones. Well, that sounds a lot like Bran's vision of John growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him, right? Being swallowed by an ice dragon is an interesting metaphor, as the wall is often compared to an ice dragon. And as John is a kind of ice dragon himself, being half Targaryen, yet having all this icy symbolism. Therefore, any sort of wall-smashing event related to John's resurrection would kind of mirror the idea of the moon cracking to birth dragons. The wall would be essentially cracking open to birth resurrected John, the ice dragon. Check out the rest of this quote, lest you have any doubt. He needed sun then. It was too cold and dark inside the tunnel, and the stench of blood and death was suffocating. John gave the lantern back to Clytus, squeezed around the bodies and through the twisted bars, and walked toward the daylight to see what lay beyond the splintered door. The huge carcass of a dead mammoth partially blocked the way. One of the beast's tusks snagged his cloak and tore it as he edged past. Three more giants lay outside, half buried beneath stone and slush and hardened pitch. He could see where the fire had melted the wall, where great sheets of ice had come sloughing off in the heat to shatter on the blackened ground. He looked up at where they'd come from. When you stand here, it seems immense, as if it were about to crush you. Hopefully you see what I mean here. The cold and dark tunnel smells of blood and death, and to escape it, John has to squeeze past dead bodies and iron bars, which kind of makes it sound like John is escaping the prison of death as he emerges from the wall. Then he looks up, and yeah, it feels like the wall is about to crush him. There's even a mention of fire having melted the wall. The fire of a huge flaming moon meteor, that's what I'd look out for. 
Of course, the entire point of knocking down the wall, however it's accomplished, is to let the others through, right? And when John lets the wildlings through the wall in A Dance with Dragons, the entire chapter turns out to be an exercise in foreshadowing John letting the others through the wall. Dun dun dun. I have saved this scene of most ultimate symbolism for the climax of this video, so that you who have watched this far shall be mightily rewarded. The first thing to note is that John and Val did an entire detailed Knights King and Queen reenactment bit when they discussed this deal to let the wildlings through the wall. I broke that scene down in the Knights Queen video, but if you recall, the gist of it was that it sets up John and Val as symbolic Knights King and Queen figures specifically in the context of them arranging to let the other-like wildlings through the wall. The symbolism indicating the wildlings as stand-ins for the others is pretty overwhelming, as you're about to see. So John and Val are basically showing us Knights King and Queen engineering an invasion of Westeros. The chapter actually opens with John's Azor High Dream, the one we quoted earlier where his sword burns red in his fist while he defends the wall, armored in black ice. He wakes from the dream the same way that he woke from the wolf dream where the raven was screaming snow at him through the moon's face, actually. It says, he woke with a raven pecking at his chest. Snow, the bird cried. So it's just like the other wolf dream. What's happening here is that the author is using a repeating set of symbols through John's chapters in A Dance with Dragons as a way of building up a specific line of foreshadowing. And everything is about John's resurrection and the long night. Bottom line, John will wake from death to the sight of snow. Lots and lots of snow. A moment later, the raven identifies John as a corn king, which is one of my favorite winking and nods to the clever reader anywhere in the series. And no, I didn't find this one. That credit goes to Schmendrick of R plus L equals Lightbringer fame. He rose and dressed in darkness as Mormont's raven muttered across the room. Corn? The bird said, and king? And snow? John Snow? John Snow? That was queer. The bird had never said his full name before, as best John could recall. Yes, well, Corn King Jon Snow is apparently Jon's full name, and that's quite meaningful. As we've discussed in the Green Zombie series and elsewhere, the phrase Corn King is a comparative mythology term created to describe the recurring presence of a nature god who dies and resurrects in imitation of the cycle of the seasons. That's not to say that all these Corn King deities and figures share a common origin, of course, just that many people have seen the cycle of nature losing its green in the fall and getting it back in the spring as the face of a dying and resurrecting nature god. It's pretty easy to see how John could fit this mold, since he's just now died right as winter was coming on, and since he will eventually play a role in ending the winter and getting the seasons to turn once again. But what if, in the meantime, John is actually some kind of reverse corn king? A king of winter instead of a king of summer? I mean, that is the title of his ancestors, after all, king of winter. What if John's resurrection coincides with the full onset of the unholy winter of the long night? Because in this chapter, John is essentially signing his death warrant, sacrificing himself like a corn king, to shelter and feed the wildlings. And the wildlings are going to symbolize the others. This suggestion could be that John's death and resurrection will be made to serve the purpose of letting the others through the wall. So let's watch him act this one out, shall we? The first ones to come through the wall are the wildling hostages, over 100 boys between 8 and 16. 
The boys were going to a place that none of them had ever been before to serve an order that had been the enemy of their kith and kin for thousands of years. Yet John saw no tears, heard no wailing mothers. These are winter's people, he reminded himself. Tears freeze upon your cheeks where they come from. Not a single hostage balked or tried to slink away when his turn came to enter that gloomy tunnel. Almost all the boys were thin, some past the point of gauntness, with spindly shanks and arms like twigs. All right, so winter's people, with frozen tears and no fear. They're gaunt like the others, with spindly shanks and arms like twigs. And that's actually a nice clue about the weirwood origins of the White Walkers of the Wood, as their full name describes them. Anyway, now begins the parade of double entendres with the word other. Other lads had bare paws on their boots and walked on top of the same drifts, never sinking through the crust. The part about not sinking through the crust of the snow is noteworthy because, and this is according to my copy of the quotable cold hands that I picked up in a trendy Berkeley bookstore, the white walkers go lightly on the snow. You'll find no prints to mark their passage. We'll see this exact same symbolism again in a moment. Other hostages were named as sons of Hald Wanderer, of Brog, of Devon Sealskinner, Kyleg of the Wooden Ear, Morna Whitemask, the Great Walrus. The Great Walrus, truly? They have queer names along the frozen shore. Alright, so the other hostages are from the frozen shore, and the world of ice and fire tells us that the wildlings of the frozen shore worship, quote, gods of snow and ice, which sure sounds like white walker worship, perhaps along the lines of what we see with Craster. Thus, it makes sense to label their children as others, just as Craster's wives call the others Craster's sons. Notice also that these are the sons of at least two people with names that allude to weirwoods or tree people. There's Morna White Mask, who wears a white weirwood mask, and that fellow called Kyleg of the Wooden Ear, with a wooden ear kind of implying a wooden face, like a weirwood tree. We actually see more folk from the frozen shore a moment later, and once again, we have another's double entendre. After the riders came the men of the frozen shore. John watched a dozen of their big bone chariots roll past him one by one, clattering like rattleshirt. Half still rolled as before. Others had replaced their wheels with runners. They slid across the snowdrift smoothly, where the wheeled chariots were foundering and sinking. The dogs that drew the chariots were fearsome beasts, as big as dire wolves. Once again, we see it is the chariots labeled as the Others, which go lightly on the snow without breaking the surface, just like the real Others. The implication of dogs that are like direwolves pulling the chariots of the others is pretty cool, perhaps implying a link between the Starks and the others, which is like, tell me something I don't know, right? I'll also mention that Rattleshirt, to whom the bone chariots are compared, seems to symbolize a white walker himself. He has bone white armor, just as the others have bone white flesh, and his outfit and Lord of Bones title imply him as a Lord of Death. The next other's wordplay again mentions Rattleshirt. A few were clad in stolen steel, dinted oddments of armor looted from the corpses of fallen rangers. Others had armored themselves in bones, like Rattleshirt. Now this is all from the same chapter, let me remind you. This next one is, frankly, disturbing. Amongst the stream of warriors were the fathers of many of John's hostages. Some stared with cold, dead eyes as they went by, fingering their sword hilts. Others smiled at him like long-lost kin, though a few of those smiles discomforted John more than any glare. None knelt, but many gave him their oaths. 
That line is discomforting, isn't it? The others are John's long-lost kin? Well, yeah, I mean, if there is any sort of connection between House Stark and the others, then yes, John and the others are kind of like long-lost kin. In fact, I'd call this line a pretty good clue about the others having a blood tie to House Stark. And of course, you can find more about that in the Blood of the Other podcast series, since that's literally the meaning of the title, Blood of the Other. It's like Blood of the Dragon, only Blood of the Other. Now, I know sometimes some of you guys get a little skeptical when I do this other double entendre stuff, but I will just quickly point out, not only are these frozen shore warriors labeled as others, they also come with other kinds of clues. For example, they have cold dead eyes, and they worship cold gods of snow and ice. The other group was named as Winter's People, and so on and so forth. I mention this because I always want you to have confidence in the analysis that we're doing here, so hopefully that all makes sense to you. All right, so if you're keeping count, that's five other double entendres with strong supporting clues around them. Here are number six and seven. By afternoon, the sun had gone, and the day had turned gray and gusty. A snow sky, Tormund announced grimly. Others had seen the same omen in those flat white clouds. It seemed to spur them on to haste. Tempers began to fray. One man was stabbed when he tried to slip in ahead of others, who had been hours in the column. Toreg wrenched the knife away from his attacker, dragged both men from the press, and sent them back to the wildling camp to start again. The second Others line, one man was stabbed when he tried to slip in ahead of the others, simply works to corroborate the idea that the wildlings are symbolizing the others, which we've pretty much already established. The first line, however, that one's pretty creepy. While John and Tormund are looking up at a snow sky, we're told that others had seen that same omen in those flat white clouds. You better believe the others see a snow sky as a time to attack. I would also call this another clue about John's birth being the thing that triggered the awakening of the others. They see a snow sky as an omen which spurs them on to haste. Well, relative haste. Like hasty for a glacier. I mean, it's been five books that they're almost about to attack. And the nine years it's taken George to write Winds of Winter. But we did see the others watching John's birth, after all. So I do believe that snow is the omen which the others are looking for. Ah, long video, huh? Well, there wasn't really a good place to chop it up, and I can't really think of anything I could have cut out. In fact, there's one last little cherry on top that I can't resist putting on our Jon Snow ice cream sundae. Cast your minds back to the Jon and Corrin half-hand fleeing from the wildlings out of the Frostfang's mountains scene. Jon and Corrin pass through a cold waterfall into a hidden cave where they spend the night, but then when they come out the other side the next day, they're confronted by Rattleshirt's band. And that, of course, is where Jon must tragically slay Corrin half-hand and join the wildlings. And join the wildlings, who we just saw symbolizing the others, dun-dun-dun. That's right. John's passage through the waterfall cave symbolizes his death and resurrection, just as his passing beneath the wall and out again did in the scene we quoted a moment ago. Last time, John emerged from the iron bars and corpses to see the wall looming over him as if about to crush him. And this time, John emerges from the symbolic cave of death and joins the symbolic others. I mean, good lord. The big spearwife narrowed her eyes and said, If the crow would join the free folk, let him show us his prowess and prove the truth of him. I'll do whatever you ask. The words came hard, but John said them. Rattleshirt's bone armor clattered loudly as he left. Then kill the half-hand, bastard. As if he could, said Corn. Turn, Snow, and die. Actually, it looks like it's going to be 
die, Snow, then turn, if John rises from the dead and joins the others. In fact, the death wound that John delivers Corrin mimics and foreshadows John being sliced through the jugular vein when he is assassinated three books later. The ranger was leaning away, and for an instant it seemed that John's slash had not touched him. Then a string of red tears appeared across the big man's throat, bright as a ruby necklace, and the blood gushed out of him, and Corrin half-hand fell. Ghost's muzzle was dripping red, but only the point of the bastard blade was stained, the last half-inch. It's almost like George wants to explain to us that even a very shallow wound to the jugular can be fatal. In fact, that's probably exactly what he's doing, because again, this is exactly what happens to John. Wick Whittlestick only grazes John's neck with his knife, but the blood wells immediately beneath John's fingers, indicating a jugular wound. That's why John collapses in short order, unable to make his sword hand grip his sword. And there's even a little parallel to that when Corrin dies, quote, lifting his maimed fingers on his famous half-hand. After that, John's next thoughts are, who was he now? What was he? As if he's been transformed into something different. And indeed, his transformation into a symbolic other is completed when Mance Raider gives him a sheepskin cloak upon meeting John. Sheep are, of course, white, obviously, so this is a sneaky way to give John an other-like white winter cloak. And there's also the fact that Craster, who gives his sons to create others, pretty much always wears nothing but sheepskin. And he even gives sheep to the others when he lacks sons. And yes, there is a wolf in sheep's clothing joke sitting right here. But the real point is that John will be, for a time, a wolf in others' clothing. Though I'm sure he'll eventually end up back on the side of the watch, just as he does after leaving the wildlings. Next, Ygritte names him Jon Snow to the other wildlings, and of course the wildlings do get other double entendres. When Ygritte tells Rattleshirt that the wildlings have no reason to fear John's warging ability, it says others shouted agreement. Then a moment later, it says, Afterward, Rattleshirt claimed some charred bones, while the others threw dice for the ranger's gear. The very next thing that happens is that John asks if they will now return to the wildling base beyond the frost fangs from whence the wildlings came. Happily for my theory crafting, Ygritte's answer seems to line up with what I think John will do if the others steal his body. No, she said. There's nothing behind us. The look she gave him was sad. By now, Mance is well down the milk water, marching on your wall. Aha, so John emerges from his symbolic death cave and joins the symbolic others right as they're marching on the wall. John does, of course, cross the wall with the advance party before the main army, so John really does lead the symbolic others over the wall and into Westeros. Three books before he also symbolically leads the others through the wall and into Westeros. And now you know why the others will steal John's body. Man, so much spooky music in this video. Might be scaring people away. Can we get something a little more upbeat, guys? A little more, some little more snazzy, a little snappier. Ah, oh, that's better. Hey, look, t-shirts. Tote bags, all these designs. We should visit the web store and oh, a website and a Patreon website and look at these fine folks. Man, but all these people are super good looking, talented. Just look at these titles. I'm a lucky podcaster with friends like these. All right, I guess I better shut up now. Remember to press that subscribe button. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. 
coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.